This is the Wealth and Law Podcast, a podcast about the intersection of personal wealth and the legal landscape. We'll take a deep dive into relevant topics. We'll basically teach you what we know, and we'll engage with guests with deep expertise in their field. We hope that you'll enjoy this episode and many more episodes. So please join us on this journey as we try to bring you relevant information that is both timely and important for you to know in order to engage in this area of the world. Well, welcome to the Wealth Law Podcast. As usual, I am joined by Rachel Sass. Rachel, how are you? I'm doing pretty good. How are you? Doing well. We're keeping the lights on. Keeping the lights on. Yeah. <laughs> We're burning the midnight oil, really, is what's <laughs> <There's>, happening. <laughs> that's really what it feels like. Uh, yeah, all of the idioms that re- that mean that thing that you are working too much. You know, burning candles on both sides, midnight oil. Yeah, we've got all of those going right now. Yeah. But that's... I was telling telling my friends the other day, I'm like, please be nice to estate planning attorneys right now because we're we're just kind of underwater at this point. And, and it's funny because, you know, when, when you talk to someone about estate planning and they think, oh, well, that's pretty relaxed, like attorney position, right? You don't have major deadlines. I'm like, no. Actually, if Congress wants to do some things like they're doing right now, uh-uh. it's it's all hands on deck. You're you're working 10, 12 hours a day minimum. Yep. And it's like uh, it's like deadlines that aren't really of your own making or that you don't know, yeah. you don't necessarily know are coming. So mm-hmm. I definitely didn't know that these particular deadlines were coming until Monday of last week. And then I was informed. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. And, and I hear, I do hear some estate planning lawyers are like, ah, you know, it's not a big deal. And I'm not, it's just proposals and that's not the law, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like, I just, that doesn't help me sleep at night at no. all. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, sure. However, if it becomes the law, as soon as it becomes the law, you're out of luck and you can't do anything. Mm-hmm. Plus all the things that we're having our clients do, it's good planning anyways. It's like mm-hmm. stuff that they should be doing, but maybe they've been dragging their feet. Yeah. And this is this is the kick in the rear to get people moving. So exactly. I'm happy to let them do that. Very yeah. happy. Yeah. Congress Congress keeps keeps us employed pretty well, I gotta say. Sometimes <laughs> they do. Cong- well, Congress and then just human beings, you know, mm-hmm. be- behavioral psychology, that also keeps us employed pretty well. Definitely. <laughs> Or so it feels. Yeah. Well, I was excited for this conversation because we're joined again by our friend, Jenna Rubin. Jenna, you're like an OG of this uh, <laughs> podcast. I think you're like, you were like episode seven or eight. So well, thanks for having me back. Yeah. Welcome. Welcome back. It's good to have you back. Ho- hopefully uh, you guys are well and had good holidays. We did. Although I, I've been practicing since 2010. So this is like my, I don't know if it's, like the third or fourth like fire drill with Congress throwing something out there and changing it. And I'm just happy to say it's not Christmas. Like it's it's okay to do it to me right now because it's not over Christmas break. So yeah. I'll make it. It's a little bit better this time. Um, I agree. I agree. Yeah. I think it's got, it has that element of it where it's like, yeah, it's not fun, but it is September. <laughs> like we're supposed to be working. It's kind yeah. of <laughs> But it is pretty wild. And but I, I guess also I think for us that have been practicing like the last 10 years or so, you know, we've seen this happen a few times now. Yeah. So it's not as surprising. And it, I don't know. I talked to some of the older guys that have done this a lot longer and they're like, the, the practice is over. This is it. I'm like, oh, I've seen it three times. So, you know, what's another round? Yeah, that's really funny because um, it. Yeah, I think you and I have been practicing for a similar amount of time. And I, I have experienced these phases, worked till midnight on, you know, 
these deadlines almost every time they've come up. And uh, and then I hear the same thing from older lawyers every time something something like this this happens. They're like, I don't want to learn r- new rules. I'm just going to retire and then I don't have to deal with this. <laughs> And it just makes me wonder, like, with the the speed of changes, you know, how quickly they come. Like, when is it in your life that you reach a point where you're like, I'm done. That's it. That's the final change. Now that retired me. Maybe it's coming sooner than we think. I don't know. Maybe. (laughs) Depends how many more times they do this to us, I guess. Maybe so. Well, this is actually... uh, Notwithstanding that these changes are tax changes, because uh, all of us right now are probably, I'm assuming this this being true in your office too, setting up lots and lots of irrevocable trust for people because mm-hmm. the ability to do it in the most efficient estate tax planning way is potentially going away soon. So one element to that is then trying to determine who will fill various roles. And I got to say that, first of all, I'm impressed because you, it means uh, people in your state are really on the ball. And and second of all, as really just a point of fact, that Florida is kind of on the cutting edge on these kind laws that take into account different roles inside the trust. So I thought maybe we could talk about some of the new things happening in Florida in that regard. We can contrast it to Arizona and then talk about it more broadly. So okay, yeah. Um, so I actually think it's very timely to talk about. Um, the Uniform Directed Trust Act. And with that comes the idea of trust protectors. You know, there's a million, there's a lot of different names. And I think in different states and different kind of communities, they use different words. Um, We chose to use the term trust director only because the Uniform Directed Trust Act was written right around the time we started thinking about this. And they use that terminology. So it was easy for us to adopt the same terminology. I will say it gets very confusing. And I've never spoken about trust directors without getting it mixed up at least once, if not more, where I'm talking about a directed trustee and I call them the trust director or vice versa. So I think that is a problem with the statute. Just the word, the verbiage gets very confusing. Um, So if you catch me, feel free to jump in. Um, Because I think, I think we all called them trust protectors, at least like my generation for a while there. Um, and, And they were, they're prevalent, but they're not the most used thing. But in certain situations, you know, you would put them in your documents and you'd have to round up another fiduciary and put them in the document. Um, And I guess there's been a movement just across the country to adopt, to use these different, you know, another person who's not a full trustee, they're not, they're still some sort of fiduciary. So um, they put together a uniform act commission and coincidentally they were doing their work when Florida tasked, um, my committee, which was a committee of the trust law section of the real property probate and trust law committee of the Florida bar. And we're very active in legislation. So this is kind of normally how our trust law comes about. So they said, hey, you know, we don't really have a robust trust law on trust protectors. Take a look at that. See if we need some changes. And coincidentally, they were developing their uniform act at the same time. So we were able to piggyback on the uniform Act which is always nice to do. Um, Cool thing about that was Professor Robert Sitkoff was one of the people spearheading the Uniform Directed Trust Act. And he was my trust and estates professor. So I had a easy way to pick up the phone, call him and uh, talk through certain things that they put in the act, why they put them, whether we liked them. So it was a pretty cool experience to be able to to go through it. And what we did was we adopted the Uniform Act and we sort of took it and we 
I say we Floridaized it, um, where we went through it from a Florida trust law perspective, adopted things we thought would be palatable in Florida and consistent with Florida trust law, changed some things, not everything, and ended up with the new act that Governor DeSantis recently signed into law. Yeah, and recently, like July, right? That's when it became the law. Yeah, it was sitting out there, and and I don't know, you guys probably don't see DeSantis on the news as much there as we do, but he was going around to different stakeholders and doing like bill signings, and I I wrote and I said, you you know, come to come to us, and we wrote the law, like come sign it with us, but he didn't respond. I just thought that would be kind of cool. <laughs> the lawyers like, didn't get a response. That is so rude. And it's just not as sexy, I guess. It's not as <laughs> that he was signing. I don't think you're necessarily his constituency. I'm just going to throw that out there. <laughs> and he's not focused on trust law. No. <laughs> Although our goal is to bring trust law to trust business to Florida. So, you know, should be interesting to him. But he signed it. So we're really happy. Yeah. Well, let's let's break that down just a little bit. So then if you have a trust that has a trust director, mm-hmm. what would be maybe their default rule role in the Florida Act, and then what could be their role Mm -hmm. based on the discretion that you have to make changes to the act in your document? So there's no real role that we give a trust director or or a directed trustee or a trust protector, any of them in in our act. What we did is we very broadly define anytime there's someone who has a role in a trust who is not the trustee, we kind of tried to envelope all of that. We carved out who is not part of the act, so not subject to these new fiduciary duties and um, things like that. So for example, um, somebody holding a power of appointment is not a trust director. Um, they're not a fiduciary. We know that that coincides, you know, that goes with all tax law that we know. So we made sure to exempt that. And there were a few other things that we exempted, but pretty much any other person who's acting under a trust that's not the trustee is going to fall under our statute, which then governs the fiduciary duties and other kind of non-fiduciary but important things like information sharing, reporting, jurisdiction, all of those other things that we we tend to think of as part of trust law. So I've seen trust directors that do all sorts of things. Sometimes they manage a specific investment. Sometimes they can amend the trust if there's new tax laws. Um, Sometimes, you know, there's sort of a lot of reasons why you might not want to have the trustee and it's sort of dividing and checks and balances. So I have a long list somewhere of all the different things that we think people use them for. I'm curious, do you guys use them a lot in Arizona? Yes, I guess is the answer, uh, the way that you're describing that. But we call them trust protectors. Mm -hmm. And we have a statute that describes what a trust protector is. Now, our statute, it's it's our own. We created it. Okay. Okay, It's not based on, it's it's not not really based on anything. This is just like people in a back room somewhere, like writing this, these things out and then getting it passed into law. I I say tongue in cheek because I've been involved in these back rooms, but the, um, the statute effectively says that someone who is a trust protector, first of all, is not a fiduciary. They have no fiduciary duties. It says that they basically have the powers that are given to them in the document. They don't have any inherent power. So if you want to give them power, it's got to be in the document. And then we also say very explicitly in our statute that the exercise of the authority of a trust protector is the exercise of a special power of appointment to your, uh, There's the dog in the background for anybody wondering what this uh, reindeer sound is. (laughs) Um, The exercise of of the authority of a trust protector is exercise of a special power of appointment, to your point, because generally speaking, exercise 
holding a power of appointment and then exercising it is a non-fiduciary act. And right. we wanted to be really, really clear that these are not fiduciaries. So what are you using them for? We use them pretty broadly. Okay. Um, so oftentimes we give them broad authority to receive information on behalf of the trust. We give okay. them often the authority to remove and replace trustees. We usually give them the authority to institute proceedings on behalf of the trust or the beneficiaries. Mm -hmm. So, if, you know, all the beneficiaries are minors and none of the parents will step in. Mm -hmm. uh, the trust protector could step in and institute a proceeding. We also quite frequently will give them the authority to amend the document. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we'll limit that down to amendments that relate to, say, changes in the law. Um, but sometimes it's very broad and we'll just say they can amend the document. Well, now we might have a carve out to say you can't disinherit this, per you know, you can't cut out this beneficiary. Mm -hmm. You can't cause a state inclusion. Right. Um, but otherwise, very broad authority to amend the document quite often. And then occasionally we'll also give them authority that relates to dispute resolution, such as the authority to interpret uh, mm -hmm. provisions in the document, the authority to force the parties to attend mediation mm -hmm. or to be subjected to arbitration. And that is covered in a separate section in our trust code that basically says that trust documents can force people to to use alternative dispute resolution. So it can be very, very broad. And I think that's probably yeah. maybe broader than a typical trust. Well, that's program. very broad and interesting that you have no fiduciary duties then. So we, we had a prior statute um, and, and it did, it was, it was, it, it wasn't as broad in that it specifically said that the trust director, or I think we still use trust director at that point. So the trust director can modify or terminate a trust, but it didn't say that was exclusive. So you could do other things. So you're never quite sure if you were doing something other than those things, whether you were traveling still under the same statute. But we did have fiduciary duties and it was um, they have to act. You know, they can't do anything that's manifestly contrary to the terms of the trust or that the trustee knows the, or that the trustee knew it was an attempted exercise would constitute a serious breach of fiduciary duty. Then the directed trustee would be liable for breach. So there were that was a real fiduciary duty. And then. For the trust director, it was presumptively a fiduciary required to act in good faith with regards to the purposes of the trust and the interests of the beneficiary. So it's pretty much the normal standard for a fiduciary. So we've always had fiduciary duties for our trust protectors, trust directors, whatever you want to call them. In Florida, um, we use them kind of similarly, though, so, so really broadly. And the reason the, we liked the act was because not only does it define the fiduciary duties of the trust director, it's clear on what the directed trustees fiduciary duties are. And it also gives like a whole framework for all those other things you're talking about. So like the ability to go to court. And if you go to court, can you get fees? What jurisdiction governs? There's there's a lot of non-fiduciary stuff in the act that I think gives a trust director a lot more guidance than than the prior statutes that most states have. Yeah, I think that's probably true. And and we actually, in, in our documents, because you can, mm -hmm. under our trust code, you can change all these rules however you sure. want, really. Like you can write yeah. all of these, all the statutory rules, you can just rewrite them however you want in the trust document, and then that controls. And so we, in our document, impose a duty on the trust protector. And it's a, it's a, mm -hmm. it's a, minim, a minimum fiduciary duty of good faith. Which is exactly the same as the minimum duty you have to impose on trustees in our state. Right. So we say fair is fair. We'll impose, you know, we don't want anybody sure. acting in bad faith. Yeah. And then 
And then we actually very specifically say when we write our documents for trust protectors that the exercise of their authority is also not the exercise of a power to direct the trustee because at least in the Uniform Trust Code, having that authority then exposes the person with that power to fiduciary standards that apply to trustees and we're trying mm -hmm. not to make them a trustee. Right. It's a whole rabbit hole. So no, I think it, it'd be um, better for us to have a more fulsome statute like you guys have adopted. Yeah, no, I think I think it works and I think it does a good job of really detailing the fiduciary duties and giving somebody, you know, maybe some comfort if they're deciding to serve. Um, one thing we didn't do, um, which some states did, but the, the Uniform Act did not, is defined willful misconduct. So there was a big debate in Florida about whether or not we wanted a definition. And there were there were a few reasons why we didn't. One was that that term is used elsewhere in Florida law. So we didn't want to change the law in other areas by creating our own definition. Could probably have gotten around that by saying for purposes of this section, but people were, people were concerned about that. Um, Delaware defines willful misconduct. And I think I printed. So Delaware has has the willful misconduct standard. And in Delaware, it means intentional wrongdoing, not mere negligence, gross negligence or recklessness. And wrongdoing means malicious conduct or conduct of sign to defraud or seek an unconscionable advantage. So people really like that Delaware standard because it gives you something concrete to hold on to and know what you're doing. We chose not to. There was a lot of pushback. People didn't like the idea of a definition. So we don't have one, which I think is could be a problem for our statute later, and it's going to make some corporate fiduciaries uncomfortable. It's just the way it is. Um, but the idea is it's it's an intentional wrongdoing. Um, so so you can't you're you're not going to get caught up in willful misconduct if you make a mistake. Hopefully there has to be something more driving it than that. So I think it's a good standard. Do I think it could have been better? Maybe depending on where you come out on whether you like definitions or not. Um, I always am worried that we're going to get a bad case that makes bad law with, without that definition. And then you'll be changing the definitions. Then we'll be and you'll be calling you'll be calling DeSantis again, saying we changed the definition. We'd really like you to show up for the signing yeah. ceremony. Yeah, exactly. Come to my office. <laughs> Put me on the news. <laughs> so yeah, that, the statute's really good in that sense that that it has a def, you know has a fiduciary duty not defined, but I think you know willful misconduct is pretty strong language. Um, so you kind of know what you're getting into there. Yeah. 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 I think it's it's just I, I really like the statute because I think it really does provide that guidance that if the trust agreement isn't a very robust trust agreement and like outlines all the specific powers that the trust protector has and what standards they are held to, it just really gives an overall guidance to, okay, what what can I do? And then it really just lets that fiduciary know that, that individual know or, or corporate trust protector know, you know, do I need to seek counsel before I make any decisions? Because mm -hmm. if I am held to a fiduciary standard, I, I need to know before I make any major decisions. Yeah, I think it, it lets the drafts person sleep a little bit easier at night because you don't have to think of every single thing that might come along with that power you're giving them. So we we have a clause in there that it's not just what's expressed in the document, but also things that are sort of it's like a necessary and proper clause. You know, what else, whatever else you need to be able to do your job, you can do. So I think that helps avoid some of the drafting, especially when we're on like the cutting edge of new things. You can kind of leave that open and let let the fiduciary figure out what they need to do. And another, I think, really positive thing about the statute is it's clear on information sharing, which can be a problem that there's 
There's no duty to provide information, but if somebody wants it and it's relevant to their job, there is a duty to provide it at that point. Um, I think that's important. I think that was like kind of a gap, like who, who gives what information and to who are you accounting to the beneficiaries? Are you accounting to the trust protector? And if you account to the trust protector, does that even have any meaning? So I think that helps a lot. Um, we also expanded things like our, our trust disclosure or accounting documents can apply to a trust protector so they can run a statute of limitations on disclosure documents. I'm trying to think what else we put in there that I liked. Um, no duty to monitor. I think that's that's a good one because you, you have a lot of trust protectors who might not even know they're in there. So they're not going to be in breach yeah. of their fiduciary duty if they're not yeah. acting. Yeah. So we try to cover a lot of stuff like that. Can I can I ask you one thing? Because you you just you you hinted at this, and mm -hmm. I think it's a really interesting issue, which is not clearly answered in our law. And that is, if you have a trust, or did you guys think about if you have a trust director who takes action, what is the statute of limitations on a proceeding against them? So, on for the example, in in our trust code, the statute of limitations on a trustee if they haven't disclosed the breach of trust is indefinite mm -hmm. until they until they are no longer the trustee essentially mm -hmm. or the trust terminates like it just the, it doesn't even begin to, to run right until this very very far in the future event happens is it similar for a trust director it is so what we ended up doing is we actually went through the entire florida trust code and decided what apply what should apply to a trust director and what shouldn't and so things like the statute of limitations we saw no reason to distinguish between a trust protector and a trust, a regular traditional trustee. So we have like a very long list of what applies and what doesn't apply. Instead of every time it says trustee, putting in trustee or trust director, we just have a long list. So things like that are included on that list purposefully so that a trust protector gets the same. I mean, there's just no justification for a different result. Yeah, no, I think it's really wise to do that. So I'll give you the the, the uh, appendix to that, which is, so in our statute, like I mentioned, the exercise of an authority of a trust protector is the exercise by definition in the statute of a special power of appointment. Mm -hmm. And I have friends and they just love to litigate these sorts of issues and, you know, you know, weird people, you know, with these weird people who will litigate these issues. And like, you're aware of, it. you're aware of these people. Yeah. I enjoy um, it. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I'll ask my friends, I'll say, what's the statute of limitations on the exercise of a power of appointment? Mm -hmm. No one knows the answer. That oh, to me why? is scary. Yeah, I it's think like I had like I I know where we were going with the statute to say that it was a it's a the exercise of a power of appointment to this idea of like this fiduciary standard. They also want to make sure it's not really treated as a gift reasons to keep it outside uh -huh. of that person's estate and all that. Exactly. So I can see like I see where the focus was, mm -hmm. but then it opens up this huge question of but yep. if somebody gets sued. When can they get sued? And it's not clear for us. So I think it's really smart that you guys actually took the time to sit down and think it out and yeah. have a standard. Yeah, I think I think it's a really well done act. I think there were, you know, they they hit on a lot of the things that, you know, you're thinking about. And it, it definitely I just think it makes it so you don't you can draft a little bit easier. You can put mm -hmm. somebody in a role and know exactly what they're doing and, and whether they want to take it. So, you know, it dresses even like compensation, removal, appointment of a successor, like should the law of trusteeship apply to a directed trustee on those? And the answer is usually yes for most of those things. So I think that's important to, to understand. Um, Cause I think it's hard, you know, you have a client come in and they, you're like, 
who do you want to name as your successor trustee? And maybe they have their kids and or, or a family member that they trust. And then you start getting outside of that that first line, and, and it becomes hard to find people who want to serve in that role. Um, and and then beyond that, you know, if there's uncertainty, why on earth would anybody take on that role? Yeah, yeah, you're right. Well, let's talk a little practically then. You you mentioned how this probably won't satisfy the corporate trustees, but I mean, you know, what do you see from a practical perspective of how this act is going to change things or maybe not? For I actually don't think it's going to change things from a planning perspective. Uh-huh. If you were using trust protectors, you'll continue to use them. I think, you know, the longer in duration a trust is and the more, you know, we've got these irrevocable dynasty dynasty trusts. Like there is a really good reason to have somebody in there who can change things because the world changes. Um, But I, I, my everyday practice where I'm drafting like, you know, a will and revocable trust for a family, there's not always a good reason to use a trust protector. And I I don't put them in just because I can now and because there's better law. Um, But I would be comfortable, more comfortable if I, if a client came to me and there was a real reason to use it, putting it in. Mm -hmm. It's a good point. And I, I do see sometimes practitioners who put trust protectors in documents just as a matter of course. Yeah. I'm not quite that comfortable if it's a a trust that's meant to last, say, more than one generation. So it's not just going to terminate at some point. Um, I'm a lot more inclined to think about either naming a trust protector immediately or at least having a mechanism mm-hmm. to name a trust protector. That's actually what I'm doing more. I have that in there. Like if, if they need it, you can do it, but we're not mm-hmm. doing it as a matter of right, you know, automatically. Yeah. Documents. Yeah. And that I makes think attorneys put themselves in a lot. Um, which I actually, I do get what they're doing there. And they're saying, you know, I'm the person who will know if there's a reason why this needs to be changed. Yeah. I I get a little uncomfortable when I see that as like the default in every document that that lawyer's doing. I agree. I don't like Mm -hmm. that as a default. Um, I have maybe three or four clients who have wined and dined me enough to convince me to do that for them. Uh, And usually if I do it, it's like, all right, there's a very discreet thing. It's happening now. Mm-hmm. And I'm in and I'm out. And that's yeah. it. That's the end of the story. So exactly. I'm not just going to do this forever. Yeah, it's interesting because I think the the lack of a directed, a more fulsome kind of directed trustee statute in Arizona mm-hmm. means that the way that trusts tend to be structured here does not include bifurcation of authority among the trustee and other parties mm-hmm. as as is more common in places like Delaware, like you mentioned, or South Dakota or Nevada or Wyoming or, you know, Mm -hmm. any of these other uh, maybe even more modern trust jurisdictions. And so I'm curious if you think or or people on your committee think that the the way of the future in Florida trust planning is going to look much more bifurcated in the roles than it is now. It's a good question. And I don't know that one of the members of our committee um, is an attorney who regularly before we had the act drafted some of those types of trusts and, you know, with the bifurcated roles. And, and that was sort of a, a, almost a default on a lot of her documents because that, that's just how her practice was. Um, but do I see, do I think just, you're, you know, most estate planners are going to be moving in that direction? Like, no, not today. I haven't seen that movement just yet. Um, and I think the problem stems from, you know, you have to make it worth it to have more people participate. And with a trust, you know, I don't know, it's hard to quantify, but under a million dollars, for example, like that, that, at that point, it's probably not worth having different people kind of taking compensation for different roles. You know, when you get into the really large clients, um, there's reasons for it, but I, I don't see it in my everyday practice. I think when there's a small business or a family owned business and you want to bifurcate responsibility for that, 
makes total sense. Um, and there's already somebody running the business that that's where I see it, but not every day. Yeah. That's such a good point. And it, it, that's similar to my experience where it feels that those bifurcated roles work most efficient. Well, first of all, it's hard to find people to fill all those roles, right? It's, it's hard enough to come up with a trustee and a trust protector, but, uh, or just like a trustee and one or two successors, like that can be hard enough, but to find somebody for a bunch of different bifurcated roles can be difficult, but they do seem from my experience to be more efficient as a structure. If what you're trying to really create is sort of like a family office light scenario. It's not a full-blown family office, but it's something in between and you just want these different roles so you can plug in different players. Right. And people with expertise in whatever area. I think it does. Mm -hmm. It does work and it's a great concept and it's great to have it available. It's just not something people are going to do every day, especially, you know, and you're in a trust that's holding, you know, marketable securities, you know, a traditional trust, even if it's a lot of money, doesn't always need all those different people involved. So, yeah, I haven't seen much of a shift, but it's again, it's very new. So ask me again. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. In one year's time, your opinion may have changed. Exactly. So I do have a question for you. This actually relates to the proposed changes, assuming that the proposed changes as proposed are going to become the law in the next month or so. Mm -hmm. In light of the work that you just did getting legislation passed, which I know Mm -hmm. is a a big effort. It's Mm -hmm. not like that just happens overnight. So when you will not be able to create grantor trusts for estate tax planning purposes, and Mm -hmm. all you can do is make gifts into non-grantor trusts, people will likely be seeking jurisdictions that do not have a state income tax to set Mm -hmm. up their non-grantor trust. Do you think that having this statute and that potential in the future is going to be a boon for Florida in the, in the sort of trust side of things. Maybe. I think everything in the past kind of two years has been a boon for Florida. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> a huge influx in our population. The You know, just my traffic, dropping my kids off, going to work. There's tons of cars on the road. I mean, so it's one of many reasons why I think we're getting, you know, we're getting a lot of business here right now because of the state income tax or lack of state income tax. So, yeah, probably. But I don't know if we're, we're not we may not be. And I shouldn't say this like the best jurisdiction for that. But we're definitely we're up there and we are competitive. Yeah, you don't want to sell yourself too short. I think, you know, I don't know that people are just coming to Florida for like a just to do a not, you know, a non-grant or trust. I, I think there are other jurisdictions that people are are going to first. And maybe part of that's just traditionally who they think of, um, but we hope to be competitive. Yeah, I I would imagine that you will be. Mm -hmm. Um, I imagine you will be. Yeah. It's a different landscape than it was pre-COVID even. I mean, things have shifted in the country. Yeah, well, very interesting. We could could chat about this sort of thing with you forever, but (laughs) we also have to work and you have to work, unfortunately. Unfortunately. There, there, there are lights to be kept on. <laughs> uh, well, Jenna, we really appreciate your time per usual and uh, just cannot thank you enough for lending it to us. My pleasure. It's nice to see you both. Thank you. All right. Bye, guys. Hey, listeners. Thank you so much for spending time with us. Rachel and I both really appreciate it. We've really enjoyed doing the podcast. We're trying to do our best work and bring you valuable and useful information. And I hope you feel the same way. And if so, please subscribe to the podcast, leave us reviews, uh, subscribe to our blog if you want to follow us and see the sort of things that we write about. And also follow us on social media at Wealth and Law, basically everywhere that social media is. Thanks so much.